Creative Babble. Javier, you're a bright guy, a very bright guy. But I don't think you're one of those savants who knows exactly where he was any day of the year. Please correct me if I'm wrong, right? Neil, I don't even know what I did yesterday, man. Okay. All right. I have no clue. <laughs> okay. So, so that answers my question. If your name was Matthew Beasley and you were in the Las Vegas area, you would remember March 3, 2022 perfectly. And that's because that's the day the FBI showed up on your doorstep and things went really south very quickly. And the crazy thing is that the FBI was just conducting an investigation at this point. You know, it wasn't supposed to go south, but it could have. No, it wasn't. I mean, they were just probing into a very large investment opportunity that Beasley, who was an attorney, had promoted for a number of years. I mean, we're talking hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars that were invested in this opportunity. So. It's a big deal, and certainly Beasley felt the heat, but it wasn't like he was about to be carted off and indicted that day. So I want to make sure I'm clear here. When the FBI showed up on the doorstep, it was hostile. Beasley opened that door because he had already been tipped off by his business associate in the investment, and that associate said, Matt, you better watch out. They're coming for you now. So Matthew, what did he do? He goes and he gets a gun. He walks to the door with the gun pointed at his head, opens it. The FBI is right in front of them. And what are they thinking? This guy's about to blow his brains out. They don't know, right? Or does he have some other sort of plan? Who knows? But they're now on high alert. Yeah, anything could go wrong at this moment. But, Neil, let's not give it all away because this story is jam-packed with action. I mean, we have secret recordings of a potential Ponzi schemers doing his pitch. We even have an improv comedian going undercover, doing an undercover sting, trying to get this guy caught on tape. So what do you say, Neil? Should we intro this thing? Let's do it. I'm Neil McTie. I'm Javier Leva. And this is the Ponzi Playbook. When we last left off, you were painting this picture of the FBI showing up at Beasley's doorstep, and he had a gun to his head. I mean, things were really tense, really fast. Yeah, the tension was palpable. In a shocking twist of events, he swings the gun around Javier and points it at the FBI agents. Ooh, that's very typical, right? It's called death by cop. Maybe his intention was never to shoot the agents, but... He was not brave enough to do it himself. A lot of people do that. They point guns at police. And if you point a gun at a police, 
they're going to shoot and they're going to shoot to kill. That's correct. And that's exactly what they did. You know, the agents had no well, choice. They didn't. They didn't kill him, though. No. They, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, thank you for that correction. They didn't kill him. Which, you know, I had asked myself that question. Did they intend to disarm him, right? Because obviously these are very trained and skilled experts with firearms. And it's yeah. not like Beasley was running. He was standing there right at the door. Guns were probably already drawn. So... The agents had no choice. They they fired on him and they hit him twice. And what did you know? He just slams the the door shut. He's bleeding, and he just retreats back into his house, even locking himself in. So now we got like a hostage situation almost, right? You got yeah. this guy who's injured. He's still alive, and he has a gun. What happens next? Yeah. So the FBI brings in a skilled negotiator. They need to get Beasley out. He had pulled a gun on federal officers. So he had already committed a federal crime and he was being investigated for crimes. And he was inside and they know he had been shot. So was he going to die? They needed to make sure also that they could keep him alive, right? That's a, a duty and obligation that they, as law enforcement, had. So Beasley, meanwhile, inside, he's shouting things to the negotiator like when i come out i'll be dead you know he's even admitting things like i was running a ponzi scheme just look at all the bank records it'll prove it he's admitting this fraud he wants it over i don't think beasley thinks he's going to come out of this right yeah he's done i, I don't think he's going to come out yeah, of this it's alive. another sort of yeah. suicide and i think you hit the nail on the head it's death by cop he wanted to die by the cop but he didn't pull the trigger. He could have pulled the trigger on himself thereafter, but he didn't. Like you said, this negotiation, this hostage scenario, the SWAT team scenario lasted four hours. And they actually managed to bring Beasley out alive. It actually was a call from his son that convinced Beasley to maintain his life and surrender. So, Neil, let's talk about the scheme because we know how this kind of ends, but let's talk about what was he doing? What was Matthew Beasley up to? So Matthew Beasley operated this scheme out of Nevada, but it also touched upon you know neighboring states, Utah and California. It was a scheme that ran from 2017 until basically this period of time, right? The shootout in 2022. As I mentioned earlier, Beasley was an attorney. And he had developed a scheme built around the sale of sort of settlement contracts related to slip and fall lawsuits, or what Beasley called litigation finance. And that's how he got boatloads of money into his, his Ponzi. Neil, when I heard that, the slip and fall lawsuits, and I mean, we've covered a lot of Ponzi schemes, but I never thought that there would be a Ponzi schemes for slip and fall lawsuits. And I didn't understand it. But now, you know, after doing a little bit of research, I realized what, what's happening. So when you slip and fall, and let's say you sue Costco, you sue Walmart, you're probably going to get to recoup a lot of the damages, right? But that's not going to happen for a very, very long time. It could be months. It could be years, right? This could take months and you're going to be fighting with insurance companies and attorneys and courts. It could get really messy. So how are you supposed to live when you're out of work? You know, you slipped and you fall, you hurt your neck. You know, you're still supposed to pay your bills and stuff like that. And a lot of people wonder, hey, can I borrow money 
against my settlement, the settlement that hasn't come in yet? And what's the answer to that? Yeah, there's a whole industry built around this. With the high likelihood that the litigation is going to result in a settlement, there are plenty of folks lined up to front cash to then only later get their principal back with you know a mountain of interest attached to it. Just like these payday loans, right? That's exactly what it's like, Javier. Wow. So I had never even considered that. But as an investor, I don't know, that seems like a safe bet. You know, Walmart and Costco, they're probably going to pay out and and I'm going to make a nice chunk of change afterwards, right? Correct. So that's the product that they're selling, right? Tell me more about Beasley's company. So Matthew Beasley partnered with a guy named Jeffrey Judd. And Jeffrey Judd had founded this company called J&J Consulting Services, but way back, back in 2005 in Nevada. He and Beasley, you know, sort of team up. They, you know, get introduced through, you know, natural network. And they decide to form this partnership. And he was discussing this opportunity. So Jeffrey Judd is, is a rainmaker. He's able to, to bring in the money. And Beasley is the lawyer who understands the process and also has a network of attorneys that he can tap into. So by 2017, this thing is fully mobilized. They are selling these litigation contracts and they were typically sold in $80,000 to $100,000 increments. And the investors were promised 10 to 13% in just 90 days. So a very quick turnaround. Seems like a, like a good investment, right? Yeah, I mean, if you have that, if you have eighty thousand lying around, and you know it's a pretty stable investment, and you also know that maybe others who referred the investment to you had received returns, not a bad way to invest your money. So, Neil, if it wasn't for the fact that Beasley got into a shootout with the FBI, I mean that that's the headline, right? This Ponzi schemer gets into a shootout with the FBI. If that didn't happen, the other headline would be the fact that Beasley and J and J were targeting Mormons. Mormons that were living in the Nevada area. And Neil, this is just another example of an affinity fraud because he is targeting a group of people, in this case, Mormons, 50 to 70% of the investors were Mormon, and they just entrenched themselves in the Mormon church. I'm glad you bring that up. This is an affinity fraud. It does have that dramatic moment with the FBI at the door, but the truth is, is that they perpetrated this fraud by entrenching themselves in the Mormon church, as you said, and leveraging the relationships that those faithful folks had, right? They went to their neighbor, their friend, their family member and said, hey, this is a great way for you to make money. And then those folks put in money and they were seeing the returns. So again, it's all smoke and mirrors, but it was actually generating returns. But a little bit more about the mechanics of the scheme. So investors were actually asked for verbal commitments. This was not promoted online, on the internet, through YouTube or videos like a lot of Ponzi schemers. Instead, this was all about relationships. So these investors were then transferring money through a wire into Beasley's IOLTA account, which is basically a lawyer's trust account to hold client funds. The investors were also required to set up limited liability companies to collect their returns, which seems like a device to weaken the investors upon litigation potential, right? Because the LLC was actually engaged in a contract as opposed to an individual, and therefore 
the LLC would have to bring an action. Well, not necessarily, but it added a layer of complexity. And those were essentially shell LLCs that were created through an obligation that was asked by Beasley and Judds. So, Neil, I think what's fascinating about these Ponzi schemes is that they all come up with elaborate ways of collecting the funds. And boy, were there a lot of funds. $460 million, to be exact. And so what did they do with all this cash? Well, Beasley and Judd used the funds of the scheme to purchase luxury homes like Judd's $5.5 million home in Henderson, Nevada, at least 16 luxury cars, Ferraris, Bentleys, Mercedes, Porsche, Rolls Royce, and don't forget about the ATVs and the boats. And there was even a $5 million private jet registered to Beasley's law firm. I mean, with the cars, who's counting? I mean, 16? Goodness. So all the lavish spending aside, how the heck did we get to that point with the FBI at Beasley's doorstep and him swinging the gun to them and then them firing two bullets into Beasley? How do we get there? That's a big, big question. So we're going to talk about that after the break. All right, Neil. So we started off the episode with this dramatic FBI and shootout. But, you know, at some point, Matthew Beasley wrote the FBI a letter. And I want to read you just parts of it because it, it's kind of stream of conscious and, and he's kind of all over the place. So basically, Matthew Beasley is trying to take credit for this entire Ponzi scheme. He doesn't want to get his, his business partner, Judd, involved. He doesn't want to get his wife and kids involved. But, you know, he does address the fact that he had a gambling debt. And this is how it started. You know, he says he has no excuse, but he, he just got in too deep. And at, cert at a certain point, he knew that this was going to go down and there was no way out of it. So he figured, you know, hey, I got all this money. I'm not going to be able to get out of this. So why not give my family and my wife, the life that they deserve. That's what he says, the life that they deserve. So they deserve a Rolls Royce and a Porsche and I guess a private jet. And they lived it up for like two to three years. And he knew that that day was coming. He knew, maybe he didn't know that the FBI was going to be banging down his doors and that he was going to get into a shootout, but he knew it was going to end. He ends the letter by telling the FBI that Everything you want to know is in that lawyer trust account. So just look there. Look at all the statements. It started late December 2017 up to today. And that was a full confession. And he signed it. And that was that. Well, I don't know exactly when he wrote that letter, but it is really interesting confession, don't you think? I agree. This is a incredible confession. And we'll make sure to share this with our uh, listeners on our social channels. Ponzi schemer admitting the guilt. I mean, he is remorseful in this and he's also protective of other people. And the last line that he writes is, I am sorry that this has happened. And he signs it, nothing else. So it's an amazing document. Uh, he's willing to just go down with it all. The story definitely gets crazier. But just to make it clear from a timeline standpoint for our listeners, a criminal complaint was filed by the U.S. Attorney's Office against Beasley on March 4. They filed this document and he is detained and he is refused bond. And that's on the basis of one charge, which is assault on a federal officer. 
So he's now in jail. The FBI and the Securities and Exchange Commission, they're conducting an investigation into the scheme. Before there was an indictment or a civil complaint by the SEC, something interesting happened. Hindenburg Research, which is a short seller and also whistleblower, got wind, you know, in public record and possibly through its, you know, tip channels of this case that was now hitting the public dockets. And they jumped in and they said, there could be potential for an SEC monetary award. So let's organize an SEC tip because they're not aware the depths at which there had been investigations going on. But they knew something was up. Exactly. And Hindenburg Research was able to connect the dots, right? It looked like a Ponzi scheme. There were certain mechanics involved in the dramatic gun shootout. They piece it together and Hindenburg Research ends up putting together all that's needed for a very strong blowing of the whistle to the SEC. It's really interesting because these guys set up a sting, an undercover sting, not the FBI, just these guys set up a sting. They found a former high school classmate of Judd, the business partner of Beasley's. I mean, this guy who his name was Mark Holt, all right, went to high school with Judd. They dated the same girls. This Mark Holt guy used to be an improv comedian, which that's going to prove to be a very useful skill in what I'm about to tell you next. And this Mark Holt guy, he now owns a private jet company. Okay, so it's perfect. He's like, of course, yeah, I'll help you guys out. I've been involved in a in a fraud scheme myself, and he lost a lot of money in this Canadian oil rig <laughs> fraud scheme. And he's like, yeah, I'll help you out. So Mark Holt went undercover and he invited some J&J associates to fly with him on a chartered private jet from Vegas. And they had the microphone set up, the camera set up, and he just went for it, man. He uses improv comedy skills to play dumb and let them pitch the Ponzi scheme to him. And it worked. That's incredible. So they're getting these secret recordings, which they're kind of packaging and getting <laughs> yeah. ready for the SEC. And meanwhile, Beasley's in jail. So, you know, Judd and, you know, some other accomplices, they're not charged with any crimes. They were just being investigated when it was knock-knock on the door with the FBI. I just love it because, it, you know, we don't have the audio of this secret recording because it's probably entered as evidence. You know, this is an active investigation. It's, yeah. it's still being litigated right now, but but we do have some quotes from it. And one of the quotes, uh, somebody said, you know, we've had some people say that this is a Ponzi scheme. So they even like go out there and like, you know, and say yeah. it up front. They're like, yeah. let's address the the elephant in the room. <laughs> and and Mark Holt, the improv guy, the guy who went to high school with Judd, he was quoted by the Wall Street Journal. He said, you know, I was just creating this improv scene with people who didn't know they were in the scene and and he didn't want to come off as too sophisticated you know he, so he just played dumb and that was his strategy and it it worked <laughs> it worked so one thing we want to make clear is hindenburg research didn't break this okay the fbi they were already investigating the matter but hindenburg research was able to gather a lot of important evidence and was able to put a lot of the puzzle together so shortly thereafter, on April 12, 2022, the SEC files an immaculate lawsuit 
accusing Beasley and his associates of orchestrating a Ponzi scheme that led to over 1,000 investors putting over $450 million into the scheme all at risk, right? So Beasley's still behind bars because he's a threat and the courts do not want to let him out. And the FBI is still conducting its investigation while there's this civil lawsuit in the background against Beasley and his associates. And it takes a while. The DOJ files an indictment on March 29, 2023, charging Beasley with five counts of wire fraud and three counts of money laundering. So he's already in prison. But Judd and the others are not named. It's an interesting outcome. So you wonder back about that letter that you read where he says it was all me. Was it? Was it not? Was he protecting them? Neil, I mean, this has been a like high drama episode so far, but how was this a Ponzi scheme? I mean, Beasley allegedly didn't have these personal injury plaintiffs, so there weren't actual settlements. He was faking it. He created fake contracts. Yeah, like there really were no slip and fall lawsuits that he was going after, even though that seems like there would be so many of those, right? You know, I'm sure buried in there, there are some legitimate attempts early on to secure the plaintiffs, to bring those litigation contracts to the investors. But at some point, you don't need them. You're just given the return. So then you give these sort of blanket contracts. Hey, you'll get a portion of the of the proceeds of all of these various slip and fall cases that we're involved in. But there weren't any. At some point, it was just investors, money in, high rates of return, 90-day turnaround, money in, money out, pay prior investors. Some are leaving their money in. Some are pulling all their principal out. So the cash flow is going all over the place. And I can only imagine how stressful it was to run this Ponzi scheme. Those 90-day turnarounds. These aren't five-year promissory notes at 5%. This is high return in a short period of time. So he's got to really accelerate it. That's why he has a thousand investors and a number that's almost half a billion dollars. It's, it's incredible. It's so short sighted, right? All these guys, they live for the present, right? Like they're not, it almost seems like they don't care that the end of the road is here. Like how is this going to play out? Like it's just like juggling balls constantly in the air. I mean, there, there's no end game, is there? With these guys. You know, the psychology of Ponzi schemers is fascinating. And I'm thinking you're, hitting on something very important, which is it's not just selfishness and greed. It's also a feeling that nothing matters. It's a sort of a disassociation with the impact of actions on themselves, others close to them. We often see Ponzi schemers pulling in money from their family members. So you wonder, you know, have they lost you know, faith in humanity and the world and themselves? Are they just pure sociopaths? Have they sort of suffered trauma in their own lives, which causes them to sort of see no value or humanity or empathy? So it's an interesting unraveling. And if you dig back in Beasley's life, there's something there. And Neil, speaking of not thinking things through, you know, we have this letter basically confessing to the FBI you know, during the shootout, he was confessing. He's like, this is a Ponzi scheme. Yeah. Just check the accounts. But then when Beasley gets to court, he pleads not guilty to all the charges. So, oops. Yeah. I don't know how that's going to play out. Yeah. He got cold feet on his own uh, admissions of guilt. 
So tell me, where does this thing stand in court? Because this is unresolved, right? It's unresolved. You know, as I mentioned, it was that March of 2023 when they indicted him. And there's that SEC lawsuit, which is ongoing. But a trial is currently set for February of 2024. That'll probably get postponed. So I anticipate it being in maybe the second quarter of 2024. That's going to be my best guess there. But the SEC has been very aggressive. They've pursued all sorts of legal actions against various parties, against those who were promoting the Ponzi scheme, knowingly or not, right? They're pursuing a lot of clawbacks for investors who made uh, significant returns and benefited and profited from the scheme. And the court even appointed a receiver. And that's due to the size of the scheme, right? 450 plus million dollars. And that receiver has been very aggressive and also very effective in selling off assets, you know, pursuing those clawbacks. As I mentioned, they've even sued Wells Fargo, which was the uh, bank that Beasley used. And they've conducted a, you know, a deep forensic accounting. So the total, Javier, they have 174 million of both cleared and or uncleared assets held in the receiver's accounts. So it's not going to make everyone whole, but 174 million is a good start. Yeah, it's very interesting. This receiver, he's been very aggressive. Like you said, he even went as far as suing Wells Fargo, who was the bank, right? That's right. And what's really interesting is that in the lawsuit, he says that a multi-million dollar Ponzi scheme like this the bank, Wells Fargo, had to facilitate the scheme at some point. And this is a quote. He goes, from a bank's perspective, the fraudulent scheme was obvious. A Ponzi scheme of this magnitude cannot run surreptitiously through an attorney's account without the bank's knowledge, right? That, that's what he's claiming. And as of now, you know, attorneys for Wells Fargo have not responded to the lawsuit or talked about it publicly. But that is interesting. You know, how does a bank not see this? This is not a typical lawyer's bank account, right? That's correct. And I've seen in some other Ponzi cases that when receivers sue banks making the same claim, like they had to know, right? They were actually facilitating all the transactions. Wasn't somebody looking that they typically reach a very large settlement? So I'm imagining that that's exactly what's going to happen here. Wells Fargo is going to write a very large check and the receiver is going to be very aggressive until they get it because they know that Wells Fargo has the money to pay that. It's just a little blip in the, the grand scheme of things for them. And, you know, the bank should be held accountable. So as I mentioned, this is ongoing. We're going to watch the SEC case in the public record. We're also going to follow along with the trial. We'll share anything we find with our listeners here. Please follow us on X at Ponzi Playbook. And you can also catch us at the Ponzi Playbook on LinkedIn. We'd love to connect with you there. If you've got a tip on a Ponzi scheme, we'd love to get it. So please go ahead and click on the link in our bio in X and down there, you'll find a little contact. Click it and send us a message. Well, Neil, that, this was a really exciting episode when we first started this podcast. I had no idea how dramatic Ponzi schemes could be. That's incredible. What do we got going on next time? The other day, I was reading about Ulysses S. Grant. And as I'm you know, thumbing <laughs> of through- Of course you are. <laughs> and as I'm thumbing through- I come across this interesting person, 
Ferdinand Ward. Ferdinand Ward is going to be on the Ponzi playbook. All right. He lured in the great general into his Ponzi scheme. Wow. So we're going to go historic. We're going way back. Yeah, this we're is going before way back. Charles Ponzi. <laughs> this is before Charles Ponzi. It's the Ward scheme. You see? Wow. This is great. So for you uh, Civil War buffs or <laughs> U.S. history buffs, this episode is going to be for you. But uh, Neil, I think we should end with some sort of uh, some tip, you know, some some advice. Some parting words for our listeners. Whatever you do, don't, don't start, start a Ponzi scheme. scheme.